Thanks, Allison. Some exciting stuff going on, right? That's right. Love it. Cool. So, uh, good morning, everybody. There we go. Love the excitement. So, uh, yesterday I was at a wedding in Fremont, like all day. And uh, at the reception, you know, you don't look at your phone at a reception, right? You're just there hanging out with people. Well, I looked at my phone, okay? And what I saw was six text messages from Jeffrey Kirkbride sharing what God had been doing in his life uh, and how God's been using him to be a vehicle for the gospel. So I've invited him to come uh, give a testimony about what God's been doing in his life. So Jeffrey, if you could come up here, kind of share a little bit about uh, the ministry that you have and the different things that uh, God's been uh, using you for. all those six text messages with you. But, uh, there's one good one is there. But um, uh, I lived in California. I'm Jeffrey Kirkbride. Some of you guys heard me speak at the men's ministry. But I um, um, lived in California for 24 years. My wife, Ritika, met her, married there, had two kids there. <clears throat> They're both in college. So um, uh, when I was in California in 2003, still living there, my daughter had a problem. She was five years old and her tooth we went to this dentist, which we usually go to. And there was a part-time dentist helping out that day, just part-time dentist. Her name was Sheila. She was from London, and she'd been raised very differently than what Allison was explaining here a second ago you know, with the children. She was raised in London, but her parents were Hindus. So Sheila had grown up a very different way thinking about God than what you and your kids grew up with. But anyway, my daughter had this problem with her tooth. She's a great dentist, and she loved kids, and she loved astronomy. Okay, so I was sold in this dentist. <laughs> but um, uh, I just get ready to open the big observatory at that particular year. She came to see the observatory with her husband, Dinesh, uh, who's from Dubai. He's not a Hindu, but um, he belonged to a different religion growing up. Three years later, we moved to Ohio, and I didn't see them very much because I was flying out to California very irregularly, but I kept in touch with them, and then God just said, they're supposed to come into the kingdom. They're supposed to know Christ, and you're going to be the mailman, Jeffrey. And I said, okay, you know, there's this song we just sang, oh my God, you will not delay, but 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2000, it, it, nothing's happening. Finally, around 2009, I was out there visiting. They'd been very successful. Dinesh had went out and bought his Porsche Turbo Carrera, and we were driving you know, 80 miles an hour in three seconds or something. It was like, and we got done, and I said, you know, every once in a while we talk about God, right, Dinesh? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, I just really want you to know the God that I know. And I, he knows that I study physics and molecular biology and talk about science and faith issues, but we hadn't really prayed together. I said, you know, we're sitting here in this Porsche Turbo Carrera, and I said, before I get in my car, can I just pray for you? <laughs> and he got so happy. He said, that'd be great. So I prayed for Dinesh in his Porsche Turbo Carrera, and... Um, he said, well, thanks a lot. I just prayed for him to come to Christ. I prayed for him to come to God. That was 2009. And I kept on witnessing to them over the years. We went right to California. Keep in touch once in a while. 2014, I was out there for something else. And, I, and as it happened, I had one day extra. My tooth cap fell out the one day I was in Santa Clara. You know, and she's the only dentist I know. 
I went to see her, and she fixed my tooth. And I said, you know, Sheila, can I pray with you? And, oh, my God, you will not delay. You know, I'm thinking that. But she said, oh, that'd be great. So we prayed in her office, dental assistants off to the side, closed the door. And after I got done praying, she said, it's really about Jesus, isn't it? Now, I didn't know you guys. I didn't know that sign to know Jesus and make him known. I do know, working with Hindus and Sikhs, that it's normal to take 10 or 20 years for somebody from that background to break through. You have no idea what it's like. You didn't grow up like they did. Okay. So I told them there's only one God. And she said, well, it's really all about Jesus, isn't it? I said, yeah. Six weeks ago, we were talking on the phone. And they said, you know, we've got a personal need in our life. And we've started praying. They had the cell phone open to speakerphone. I said, is Sheila able to hear me too, Dinesh? He said, yeah, she's right here. Are you guys both praying? He said, yeah, we're both praying. I said, you have no idea who you're praying to. And they're quiet. I said, you guys have a Bible? They've got everything. You should see the house, the Jaguar, the, all the stuff. You know. But they don't have a Bible. She said, well, uh, I think there's one at the dentist office. I, you know, on the phone, she said. I said, okay, well, um, I sent my sister-in-law there the next week to give them a Bible. I said, I'm coming out to see you. I'm just coming to see you. I'm telling them simple things about the gospel, simple things. I said, well, I don't know why you haven't heard this from somebody else. They said, well, we wouldn't have listened to anybody else. So, you know, every one of us has somebody in our lives that will only listen to you, or you, or you, or you. You have an influence over it. I, this couple today, we wouldn't listen to anybody else. So I flew out there last Sunday. And Thursday night, I went to their house. And I think some of you were praying. I know a lot of you were praying. And last Thursday night, I met them at 6 o'clock, and I started talking about apologetics. Who is God? What is God? What is this concept? What is the Bible? It went on for 11 hours. This is the only text message I'm going to read to you. I sent this to my wife. It was Friday morning. And I said, I'm still talking with Dinesh and Sheila, trying to get rid of the idols in their house. There's hundreds of these idols, hundreds of idols here, literal idols. Oh, my God, please help us. Five hours yesterday, six hours today. Dinesh is now reading Hebrews 11. Non-stop apologetics. Sheila, then Dinesh, then Sheila, then dot, dot, dot. Non-stop. It's a long road, honey. I don't know when I'll leave here. Her mother gave her all these idols. Please pray for me. We've covered 40,000 years of history, soteriology, theodicy. And in spite of 11 hours of non-stop talking, my voice is getting stronger. I'm getting stronger, not weaker. There's somebody in the room with me. Some invisible person is here, and it's not just me. I'm feeling invigorated instead of tired. Two hours after I sent that text message, I sent a picture of all the hundreds of idols in the house on this tabletop that they're getting rid of, all going to the trash. 
And I said, you know, your prayer will not be answered till this stuff is out of here. We loaded it up in his Ferrari in my Toyota and took it to the trash. And we went to their house, we went to their house and prayed. And we went to their first office, the dental office, and prayed. We got to the second office, and I said, you know, can we just pray here for you to come into the kingdom of God? And Dinesh looked up at me and he said, yeah, Jeffrey, would you teach us how to pray? And I said, yeah, there's a simple prayer in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Our Father. And I said the simple prayer. You can repeat it after me, Dinesh. Just listen to my words and repeat it. And they ask God to be real in their lives. And they just listen to my words and they repeat it after me. And they get rid of all that stuff. And I sent those six text messages to this young guy here after that it all happened. So... Uh, Thank you, God. He's in charge. He does not delay, even though it takes 13 years of prayer. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Jeffrey. To know Jesus and make him known. That's what we're all about here at Covenant Church. Well, uh, I want to take a moment very briefly just to remind everybody that we'll be having a pastoral candidate come in next week. Uh, to visit with us. And we're super excited to have uh, Kyle and Stephanie Burkholder join us so we can get to know them and so that they can get to know us as well. And right after the service next Sunday, you're invited to come and meet the Burkholders in the community life room down there at the end of the, the building. So please just mark your calendars. May 15th, after the service, you'll have the opportunities to, to meet and greet with Kyle and Stephanie Burkholders, two people who really love the Lord. Also, happy Mother's Day, right? It's always a special time to celebrate the women in our lives who care for us and nurture us and sacrifice for us in so many ways. And in fact, right after we're done here, I'm going to hop in my car, go to Michigan, and spend some time with my mom. I'd encourage everyone here to take some time today and appreciate those women that God has placed in your life who care about you. But as much as this is the day to celebrate mothers, you know, the main reason we're here today is to celebrate Jesus Christ. Amen? So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series called Happy Church. We're trying to recover the idea that God wants us to be happy. And I want to be abundantly clear right here. We're not saying that God wants to bless us with riches and comfort beyond measure. He wants us to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him because Him alone is the only source of true happiness. And the past few weeks, we've talked about the tools that God has given us for our happiness— prayer and reading scripture and humor humorously like i said last week god has given us a sense of humor for a number of different reasons which i'm not going to go into this morning but i'd encourage you to check out all these sermons on our website bgcovenant.org sermons and this morning we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects of all time and that is hope now for some of you hope is kind of sappy it's kind of kind of pointless For some of you, hope can be kind of cheesy. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only. Y'all feel me. I love it. Sometimes we hope over the silliest things. Man, I really hope it's Donut Sunday today. (laughs) And it was. Sometimes you hope for serious things. You know, I really hope I'll have food on my table next month. Hope makes a great campaign slogan, as we saw eight years ago. 
Hope, as we define it in our world today, is the feeling of expectation that something positive, something good will happen. That there's something more than our present circumstances that will come our way. That wherever we find ourselves, there is something better waiting for us, hopefully. And for the Christian, hope isn't a feeling of expectation. Hope is an established fact. Our hope is trans-universal. It's trans-temporal. As Christians, we have this hope in the thing called the gospel. And the gospel is our only true source of hope. We don't have a feeling that there's more that we can see. We know that there isn't all there is. And we know our hope has been secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to go back to basics. Because I think when we understand the fullness of the gospel, we can truly understand hope. And when we understand what hope truly is, we're better equipped to live our lives as radical, energetic, and happy disciples of Jesus Christ. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's a chapter that really spells out the crux of the gospel. And just to kind of understand this passage in context, the Apostle Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians. He's dealing with a really messed up church. In fact, if you get a spare hour or so, read through 1 Corinthians, okay? It's pretty messed up, right? This is a church that's committing all sorts of sexual sins. Believers are actively antagonizing God's word. They go to court with other believers in front of non-believers. They're being bad testimonies. They have wrong perspectives on marriage. And people are dying, dying, because they're taking the communion meal unworthily. They got some pretty weird ideas about spiritual gifts as well. So this is a pretty dysfunctional church, right? People talk about the issues that plague churches today, but none of the churches, hardly any of the churches today, hold a candle to the church in Corinth. And Paul, all throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, is trying to get these believers to think and feel rightly about the Christian faith. To those who struggle with sexual sin and have questions about marriage, he corrects their wrong thinking and instead gives them the right kind of thinking. For those who are taking communion unworthily and dying as a result, he gives them the proper teaching and the proper manner of taking communion. And for those who are confused about spiritual gifts, he lets them know that love should be sought above all the gifts, as he says in chapter 13. So the rhythm of the book is to point out the sin and the dysfunction of the Corinthians and then give them proper teaching so that they can best glorify God and be the kind of church that they're supposed to be. And that takes us to chapter 15, where Paul really gets to the core of the gospel. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means dead. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that we can come together and celebrate the hope of the gospel, the hope that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds and our eyes to the various truths that you want us to understand and embrace and practice, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Paul finally gets up to 1 Corinthians 15. After he's taught the Corinthians how to act like real Christians, he cuts through all the noise, and he basically tells them straight up, look, this is the gospel. It's important, and you need to get this right most of all. He reminds them of the core of their faith. He needs to remind them that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It is the essential Christian truth. And if you get Jesus wrong, you have no hope of getting anything else right, including your own salvation. Now, when we talk about Jesus, people get all sorts of images in their heads a lot of people want a Jesus who's a snuggly teddy bear that they can curl up with when times are hard. Others want a strong, manly Jesus who crushes his enemies and has a steak dinner afterwards. Others want a Jesus who loves them regardless of the choices that they make, even if they are intentionally rebellious toward God. And others just like Jesus, the good moral teacher, the guru. The point of this is that our culture and even church culture have different ways of conceptualizing Jesus. But there's only one Jesus. You can't have his justice without his mercy, his love without his discipline, his truth without his grace. You can't have only one piece of him. You have to have all of him. You can't have a good, righteous teacher, a moral person, without having the Son of God who rose from the dead. And that's what Paul says in this text. And that's what he says in the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole. You're not believing the whole gospel, and it's causing you all kinds of trouble. What Paul says is that I've delivered this gospel to you, which was of first importance. He says, this is what you need to take hold of. This is what you need to proclaim. This is what is saving you. This is what is giving you hope. And Paul tells the Corinthians this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen by many. What Paul does, he says this, he says, yes, it's easy to believe that Jesus died, and yes, it's easy to believe that he was buried. But if you don't believe that he rose from the dead, your faith is pointless. And he goes on to elaborate the truth of the gospel to the Corinthians. Now, many of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time know a lot about the gospel. But I think we can always be enlightened. And for those of you who are kind of shaky on the details of the gospel, I want to be abundantly clear about what the gospel is. But before I am clear, I want to get into what what the gospel is not. The gospel is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not believing in Jesus that he dies and died and rose again uh, from the dead. And if you believe those things, you're just going to go to heaven. The gospel doesn't promise you an easy life. It doesn't say if you believe in Jesus, your life will be great. You'll be rich. You'll be successful. The gospel doesn't promise that you'll always get your own way. And it doesn't promise that you'll never have doubts. The gospel isn't about just your individual salvation And it's not meant to save you from your present circumstances. The gospel is this plain and simple. 
that the God of this universe is restoring and redeeming human beings and all of creation back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. There was a time when we humans were united with God in the Garden of Eden. We all know the story, right? God creates the heavens and the earth, and he made humans in his image, Adam and Eve. He told them to rule the earth, govern it, cultivate it. He told them that they could eat from any tree that they wanted to, except for the one tree. You know how it goes. The serpent tempts them to eat the fruit of the only tree out of like a million they could have eaten from, and they're cursed. And we feel the effects of that curse as well. We're cursed by sin, which literally means separation from God. As a result, we have an orientation to thoughts and practices that harm both ourselves and harm others and bring dishonor to God. And the crowning achievement of sin is this, that someday you will die. But not only was humanity cursed, so was all of creation because it was the first human's responsibility to take care of creation but god promised a redeemer who would overthrow the serpent but at a cost as it says in genesis chapter 3 and you read through the old testament you see god trying to get his chosen people israel to simply obey him and turn to him god did so much for his children And yet they refuse to acknowledge him time after time after time. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see this pattern of the Israelites turning away from God and following other gods, falling into sin and suffering as a result of it. All of humanity had little to no hope other than the promise of one who would rescue them from their separation from God and from the hands of God of death but god sent his son jesus to make a way for salvation for the entire planet we all deserve punishment for all the bad stuff that we've done our sins but jesus has offered us offered himself up as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins past present and future and his sacrifice is what bridges us between god without having to go through a priest like the Israelites had to do in ancient times. And the fact that he rose again from the dead lends credence to his message. The resurrection was how God chose to powerfully demonstrate how he could bring darkness and turn it into light. He could take death and bring it back to life. And he can bring us from hopelessness to hopefulness. That's what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. He says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. So if you believe in the name of Jesus, that he came, that he died, and that he rose again victorious from the dead, you will be saved and restored back into a relationship with God, the relationship that all of us were created to have in the beginning. Paul goes on to say in this chapter that Christianity rests and falls upon the resurrection. If Jesus wasn't raised again from the dead by God the Father, we'd still be dead in our sins. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, it would discredit all the words that he ever said. And people would forget about him and his message. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we wouldn't have hope for the restoration 
of the created order. Christ has already saved us from the power of sin. Now he's about the business of redeeming us so we can be saved 100% from the effects of sin. And Paul goes on to say this, and I quote this, I think like every single week almost, because I think this is really where the resurrection tangibly impacts us all. He tells us, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to be asleep, but all will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet's going to sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who call upon the name of Jesus have the promise of a new body, one untainted by sin and its effects. But more than that, the gospel means the death of death itself. As I mentioned before, God promised that sin would be defeated at a cost, and it was the cost of the life of the Son of God. But that resulted in the eventual death of death and ended the spell of Satan. There's not one of us who have been touched by the hand of death in a personal way. We're able to get out of depressing circumstances. We're able to avoid temptation. But death is the one thing that will always touch us and it will always take us. What makes it hurt so bad is that we know deep down that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We know something is wrong simply because death exists. It's not right. It's not how God intended it. Paul says this in the book of Romans. He says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Imagine with me a world without death. Imagine a world where disease and famine don't exist. Imagine a world without terrorism. Imagine a world without racism or prejudice of any kind. Imagine a world where believers unite to worship Jesus instead of fighting over petty issues. Imagine a world where you'll see your loved ones again. God says in the book of Revelation, I make all things new. He's making your soul new day in and day out. He's making our church new. He's making the earth new. And he finally is making everything right. And because of this, we have hope. I just want to offer a couple closing thoughts. The gospel is the message of hope. There's no hope outside the gospel, period. And when we as a church say that Jesus is the only way to God, we're not trying to be haughty or arrogant or absolutist. We're being compassionate because Jesus has proved that he's the only way to God 
by being raised from the dead. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only one who can give you peace. He is the only one that can provide you with genuine life. He is the only true hope that any of us have for life abundant and eternal. And the more we understand the gospel and realize its power, we come to realize that the world needs the hope of the gospel more than ever. If there's anything this world needs, it's some good news. You look at how broken things are. Just turn on the TV. You see how desperate people are for wholeness and peace and happiness. I think sometimes we as Christians grow so numb to the gospel that we forget that not everybody knows about Jesus. Not everybody has the hope that we have. And we expect folks to act like we do when we forget that they don't have the hope of the gospel. Jesus tells us that we're the light of the world. We're to drive out the darkness by preaching the gospel clearly with our words and with our lives. We're called to be salt. We're supposed to live so attractively that people can't help but want to know the hope that is within us. The only solution to all of our problems in our world is Jesus, plain and simple. It's not in any political candidate. It's not in any sort of economic system. It's Jesus. And when we try to add things onto the gospel, we end up confusing people. And we end up diluting the gospel's power. But the core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. And he will come back to make it all right. This truth holds the key to transforming our world in such unbelievable ways. This is the truth that gives us hope. Like I said before, hope for the Christian is the expectation. It's the fact that God has done something so powerful through the resurrection that it can't help but affect our daily lives. Tim McConnell says this in Happy Church. He says, what we believe about the future changes everything about our present. What we believe will happen in the end changes the whole game. The hope of the resurrection, it changes everything. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. We don't have to live in the dark. We don't have to live in fear. We know that our suffering is for a moment. And we know that God will make something beautiful out of all the brokenness we see in our lives. And the hope of the gospel changes our perspective on life. We all need the hope of the gospel. And the question I want to ask you this is, are you a person of limitless hope? Like I said, the gospel is that the God of the universe is restoring and redeeming everything back to himself through Jesus Christ. My question for you is, do you believe it? If you do, are you living in a way that attests to the power of God in your life? Do you try to participate with God in his project of redemption? Has the Christian life for you been about trying to simply avoid bad things and bad habits? Has the gospel become such a cliche? The gospel gives such hope and happiness that we can't help but live and act differently in light of its truth. My question to you is this again. Does the hope that we have in the gospel impact you on a daily basis? Or are you letting the cares of this world drag you down? Because there's a world out there 
that needs the hope of the gospel. And we need to be the ones to take it to everybody, just like Jeffrey is. Because like Paul says, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Got a newsflash for you guys. Paul's not talking about me, about pastors. He's talking about all of us, the people of limitless hope who know that God will bring beauty out of brokenness. He will bring us from hopelessness to hopefulness, all because of the resurrection. And because of that, we can be that happy church because we know that God has defeated death already. The rest is just details. But as we say almost every week, you can't have Jesus' resurrection without his death on the cross. And when we take communion, we acknowledge how much it costs for God to bring us hope. We acknowledge how much it costs God so that he could bring us happiness. It's because of the cross that we don't have to work for our salvation. It's because of the cross that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been taken care of. It's because of the cross that you and I can have life eternal and life abundant. So I'm going to invite the worship team up here. And as we start singing and as we start worshiping, I want to invite you to come to the front. Take a piece of bread. It's broken for you. Dip it into the cup, the shed blood. The symbolizes the shed blood. Remember, all that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in your life. Reflect on how much it costs for God to bring about this plan of salvation and redemption. Remember that we have hope only because of what Jesus has done for us in his death and in his resurrection. And it's because of all that Jesus has done for us that we can be the happy church. Because the happy church is the church that hopes. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you never leave us without hope. I thank you that you initiated a plan from eternity past that would bring us hope and happiness and true fulfillment and joy. I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who doesn't know the joy and the hope that your resurrection brings, that you would draw them close to you, Lord. And for those that do know you, I pray that you'll empower them, encourage them to be salt and light in this dark world, Lord. We have this hope. It's an anchor for our soul. I pray that you'll help us to be messengers of your hope, messengers of redemption in this broken world because this world desperately needs you and you alone. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.